Welcome to a special edition of Conversations. I'm Eliana, and I wanted to just first start off by saying that unfortunately, many things have happened in life, and we haven't been able to get to the Les Enfants du Paradis episode. But instead, we're coming to you with a new special edition episode of our top 10 picks from 2023. For this special episode, we invited our friends Oku Sofuolu and Lawrence Garcia to join us in discussing our top 10 films. Uku is a critic and PhD student based in Paris whose writing has appeared in magazines such as the Turkish Altyadzi, Mubi Notebook, and the French feminist publication Soro Cine. This is the first time on the podcast for Lawrence, who is also a PhD student in Toronto and a film critic whose writing regularly appears in magazines such as Reverse Shot, Mubi Notebook, Cinemascope, and in review online. The format will be as follows. Each of us will discuss our top 10 favorite films of the year in reverse order, starting with the number 10 top film. Thank you for joining us. Perhaps just uh, so the many listeners <laughs> know about this constellation. Due to our festival attendances, we've come to become like loose friends on the festival circuits. And with each new festival, one meets new faces and one gets to know new people. And Oku and Lawrence have become really the faces I look out for when there's a big crowd and I try to find people to discuss the most recent experiences I've had in the cinema. So yeah, really cool to have you guys here. Yeah, Thank it's you so good much. to be here. Elle, what's on, what's on our schedule for today? So we've had a year in cinema, of uh, cinema. I don't know how many films people have seen, how many things you have been looking out for in general, and how many festivals you've attended, as well as just talking later about our top films in, in a very broad sense, because I believe each one of us does a slightly different circuit different exposure or just looking at different things in films. I think one thing that we do somehow share is we're not always looking at the biggest blockbuster hit, but curious to see what you've been watching this year and what's stood out in general. Yeah, a lot of acquired taste on our list. I think Oku, for instance, you've been at a lot of festivals these, this year, no? I mean, Whenever I would check Twitter, I would see you are in another city in a different country. And could you perhaps just tell us a bit about that and how, as as a critic, this year has been for you? I mean, not in every festival I was. I had been as a film. I, I of course I I was there as a film critic. But for example, in Locarno, I was in Locarno Critics Academy, so we had this really uh, amazing program of uh, meeting filmmakers and having workshops. So it definitely gives you a different vision of the festival, more inside from the inside maybe. And that's why I kind of missed a lot of films that I could have watched if I were there as a mere film critique, just attending the festival. Of course, like quantity of films, like amount of films that you watch is not really important when you go to film festival. And it feels like really overwhelming, I think, going to one film festival to other all the time. But I think since the big ones like Cannes, Venice and Berlin kind of have 
at least some spaces between them helps you to digest and look back and think about what you liked or not. And when I look back to my top 10 list or the films I liked the most, I kind of feel like Berlin stood out for me. And uh, like I also tell telling this to Ellie uh, before, I remember talking about uh, in previous years, like having this COVID effect on films as if we'd have so many good films after COVID in the like uh, following years in 2022-2021, but it didn't kind of happen, right? But this year when I was making my list of favorite films or like uh, the films I liked the most, I had kind of difficulty of picking because I felt that there were more good films comparing to uh, previous years. Like um, what I want to say is that like previous years I had more really good, amazing films, but they were really few. But this year I had more favorites, I guess. Like that's from my side, Mm -hmm. how the things were actually. Mm -hmm. I was also wondering because Lawrence, for you, that was the first time at the Berlinale, was it not? Yeah, it was my first time going to Berlin um, because I'd been to Cannes before, but I've never been to Venice and I still haven't been to Venice, but Berlin was my first time and it was an interesting experience. I think I didn't watch as many of the competition titles, but maybe that was for the better based on other reactions to it. But I would agree that looking back on the year and in terms of the films that ended up on my list, like Berlinale surprisingly was still still had a good sort of representation on the final list. Um, whereas usually I feel like Cannes sometimes like crowds out those films, but this year, maybe that didn't happen. I don't know if it was similar for you, Patrick or Eliana. Yeah, and I think the reason for that is that Bellinale has the forum section, you know, it's somewhat, I think, comparable to perhaps the wavelength in Toronto, that there are these more daring films that you don't really see, for instance, in Venice, you know, in Venice, you hardly see experimental cinema for instance, and even Cannes, you know, they don't have a like dedicated section that caters for those kind of films. So it's great to have uh, the Berlinale Forum, which is also just the curation there is pretty great. And if we talk about the Berlinale, we should also talk about uh, Carlo Chatrian and that he's going to be out after this year's, uh, well, it's not yet 2024. But maybe at the time you, the listener, are listening to this and there will be his last year. And I think with these side sections, he has improved the Berlinale. In fact, uh, there was this new uh, encounter section, which also has sometimes more interesting titles for sure than the competition. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how the, how the new... Uh, grand person behind the Berlinale that is uh, Miss Tuttle, how she's going to sort of take on her role and interpret that. Yeah. But already and, this year, the the forum yeah. has changed, right? The forum director has, is now different. It's true. Yeah. They are sort of separate. They are not, yeah. It's not just that one person, of course. Yeah, you're right. And I for know. you, Eliana, it I was know. also your first Berlinale, right? Even though not really yeah. you know, as, as a critic, but... I barely got to experience uh, this year's Berlinale, actually. I think I only saw four or five films, maybe. But I do have to say, 
one of them maybe one of them made it into my top 10 which is one that was exciting in a different sense but i i have or no two no um, i will see well i'm confused <laughs> we'll see but yes this is the this is the episode of the podcast where we cheat on other festivals other than Khan. <laughs> and um, I did also attend one film festival that I wanted to talk briefly about called the Five Flavors Film Festival that happens in Warsaw, Poland. That's run by um, a friend, Łukasz. And uh, I was on the international people's jury, which was quite lovely. And the film festival takes... It, it was a similar experience, I suppose, to... To you, they have 38 program films. So it's a smaller film festival that's curated. They have three different people who are curating who all come from different backgrounds. One person, I think there's more of an interest in art house and experimental. The other person is more mainstream. And the last person focuses more on programming with a, a social message. Or And there's always an educational uh, twist to it. And like you, I didn't get to see many of the films because there were some workshops here and there, but a few of the films really surprised me and stuck with me and made it to top end of the year films. So some of them perhaps were from 2022. <laughs> so bending this best of 23 understanding, but it was a lovely experience because I think really one can discover a new film festival every day if they wanted to yeah i was just gonna say that that it reminds me a bit of i think when i studied in new york for a semester we because i studied literature and uh, we discussed the book market in the u.s especially and i think it was said that there are like more book awards for instance than i don't know if it was like new publications it was really a crazy idea to me that there are more awards than there are like serious titles. And I think the same goes for festivals, that there are so many festivals that until recently I haven't even heard of. And I'm sure there are still a lot more that I've never heard of. And it's, I think my opinion has changed so much because I'm. it hasn't been for so long that I'm sort of at least adjacent to this entire game. And I would not have thought that back then maybe that these small festivals still have a lot to offer and actually often much more interesting cinema than these big festivals you know as an as an outsider i think oh those are the things that are rejected somewhere you know don't make it and then these festivals are sort of uh the ones that take it but as we will see later there w there's for instance a great title that was not accepted uh, at Cannes and and that made it then to Locarno. And I think uh, that happens a lot. And um, especially with the Berlinale, for instance, they're now trying to be a more financially viable festival as well and uh, try to allure more talent that is known by a lot of people, like more prominent figures at the festival. It's good to have something like Locarno. That is, of course, still like sort of an elite festival, but that is not as much... I don't know, focused on getting the big names and uh, it's good to have those festivals. I can also add some personal insights from that because I 
had the chance to like being in these European festivals that would would be defined as this middle level film festivals like Ihlava or Gen Film Festival that actually contribute so much to the culture and the social life of the city. And I think it's such a privilege to be able to observe that and recognize and get to know the identity of the festival and how it interacts with its public. And and, and I, I really enjoy this process sometimes much more than the film the festival offers <laughs> and uh, yeah and after getting the chance to like interact with people programmers uh people who are invited to these festivals you really get to understand that this is how a festival should work not just like running around in Cannes or Venice trying to make your screening it's not only about like watching films because every time uh, I go to a festival and then three months later I always have the uh, urge to go see these films again because at the end these impressions are not really everlasting because you're so in hurry running around trying to work but like these festivals like Locarno, Viennale which I have never been to but I'm hoping to go to next year like they they have really positive i think uh images as film festivals in europe yeah and they also sort of foster the conversation and have big names invited there just for uh, master classes or q a's and talks and i think that contributes so much as well to the discourse yeah perhaps uh Should we, if that's okay with you, because we also have to look at the time and I think we could just get lost in those kind of conversations. And I was thinking we could mention the films that did not make it on our list, uh, but, you know, might as well have. Lawrence, do you have a few titles that come to mind? Yeah, I can go through like the honorable mentions, as it were. The first one, which is just on the edge, would be Music, the Shanalek film, uh, Angela Shanalek. I really love I Was at Home, but her previous film and this one which i like quite a bit but didn't quite make it in the, the top 10 yeah that first another... shot alone you know that first shot is so ingrained uh, on my mind yeah the other one is uh our body north Core, the uh, claire simone film which i think we'll be hearing about again um human surge 3 uh teddy williams eduardo williams uh, in water the hong film um that was at berlin encounters i believe And then the other one, this is a bit of a cheat because it's not like a feature length, but who cares, um, is the Wes Anderson, the the wonderful story of Henry Sugar. So this is one of the Netflix ones. I've been a bit frustrated with his work recently, and I think some people shared that, but th actually the, the Netflix series sort of got me back on board. And I think this is the best of them. Um, yeah. So that's just five titles for, for me. Oh, and perhaps uh, on this last one, Would you share this opinion that many people said that if he doesn't have to write so much, <laughs> you know, like if the script isn't by him, if it's something that he can take from an original source that sort of benefits his vision? Uh, I'm not sure if I would quite put it that way, but maybe maybe that did help in this case. I think what I found fascinating about this one is the way that his usual very like meticulous mise-en-scene the, the staging and everything was integrated with a kind of self-consciousness about how the story was being presented um i don't know if you have seen the films but 
here you have the people narrating, but they will also like go into asides where they speak the dialogue. And I found that like a very interesting, like sort of twist in like the story is sort of happening in real time, but they're also like building the sets up um, in real time with the narration. And so it's like the narrative as a kind of process of construction is was I think really, like really interesting in this one. Whereas I think in the features that at least the recent ones like Asteroid City, everything is already sort of there in a way that is maybe a little harder to, at least for me to sort of understand why why he's doing what he's doing. Whereas here, because like everything is being built up in real time and you're seeing just parts and holes interacting, there was something else there for me that I quite like. All right. And Erku or Eliana, <laughs> whoever wants. I am going to be brief because I'm just confused by the concept of tops, <laughs> like top films in general. But one of them would be Amico, which I saw at um, the Five Flavors Film Festival. It was a very lovely film by Yusuke Mori, a Japanese film about a girl who who is who is just different. I think one can look at it as a curious portrayal, perhaps of otherness, if we are going to use this term neurodivergent, but it's never said, but it, one can look at this film through that lens, but it's a, a girl who goes through life at a beat of her own drum. Her her parents have just experienced uh, some form of loss, loss of a child, and no one ever really talks to her, and she doesn't know what's going on. A lot, there are a lot of little mysteries that unfold visually, but also in a way that leaves the 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 viewer figuring out why why. Why is this child like, uh, trying to figure out why the child is like this, why she is left in the dark. And ultimately it's because the adults around her are not necessarily communicating to her. But it plays with genre too. It's a bit musical. It's a bit, I think I'm not being so brief (laughs) after all. But um, Amiko was very interesting um and i it's set against the uh soundtrack of uh ichigo alba music who is someone who's emerged recently um in japanese and experimental music and sound and the next one would also probably be music which lawrence mentioned and do not expect too much from the end of the world by raju judah and Sparta, which is 2023 or 22, was also something that intrigued me because I think I like seeing depravity. This is the Ulrich Seidel film that's a bit of a diptych with the film from the previous year, Rimini, that shows the other brother's point of view and his struggles. And I just saw The Human Search 3, and I haven't been able to figure out where to place We'll talk about it later, but I was very, I was, I found it incredible. Um, but I'm going to turn it over to you, Oike. I also really find it difficult to like uh, make, choose films and like even give numbers like first, I like this most and second and third. It's really hard. But when I was trying to do the list, I like, thought about the films that really touched me personally. So mm-hmm. some really good movies had to be left out, such as, I don't know, uh, Evil Doesn't Exist, 
from Hamaguchi. It's a film that I also really liked after thinking about it, because I'm, I mean, it's not a really open movie. It's 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 kind of closed box. And after reflecting on these characters, this environment, it grows uh, grows a lot on you. And these are the movies that really uh, stays with me. And Evil Does Not Exist was a film like that. And of course, there's really good films that it became a consensus for most of the people, like Poor Things. I really liked it, but it didn't kind of felt that it should be on the top 10 because I don't know, it would, everyone will somehow appreciate it at the end. And um, like Killers of the Flower Moon. And Jay Lan was also in my maybe, I'm not sure type of films because some of some more personal political <laughs> reasons that I don't want to elaborate in such a like a short duration of a podcast but yeah I think mine my titles were like that and maybe I can say Bastavos here was also an honorable mention yeah and for me I have uh quite a list I think of 10 or so so I just want to uh, squeeze them in here but I also want to say that um as you may have noticed if you are <laughs> if you're well informed uh we have already mentioned some titles that are 2022 titles and that's going to be the case here because there are some films also that will never really get uh distribution or a proper coverage so uh we'll just use what we saw this year basically and i think just before i get into my little list here it's just that I wanted to just briefly talk about. Um, so, Film Comment has made this list on the best, un, like best films without distribution. And to me, I, I feel like that's a what do you call it? like a twofold blade or something? Like a, what do you call double-edged it? Sword. Double-edged sword. Yes, double-edged sword. Thank you. Uh, because on the one hand, of course, it's good also just to bring these films and the people behind it on other people's radar and map. But at the same time, I wish those films were somewhat on their official list, you know, like not on the list that is the best films of the year, because then it sort of prioritizes the films that already have distribution. I also see the, you know, I see why they would do it. So yeah, they get attention for people who might be interested in buying them or uh, distributing them. But yeah, I wish because there are so many films like uh, The Human Search 3, for instance, that is on their number one there. There's Eureka, there's even Close Your Eyes by uh, Iris. And I feel like I wish they had not the separate list, but they had this universal list that includes them all and then they pick the best ones. It's it's also just not that fun to, to uh, see the same titles again and again. But I don't know if you have an opinion on that. I think it's it's a bit of a pragmatic point, partly because the people who are voting in general for, I mean, full disclosure, like I voted for this list as well. But I think it's a pragmatic point in the sense that a lot of the people voting in this poll are not necessarily able to travel to film festivals. So a lot of the critics based in North America are not necessarily traveling to Venice, Cannes, Locarno. And so they really won't have gotten a chance to see some of these films. And so if you combine them, they just won't be there. Um, 
like some of the undistributed films just won't be there because a lot of the people voting will just not have seen them. And I think in the case of the undistributed list, you have in some sense, like a smaller subset of those people voting for the poll who do travel to film festivals and are voting for them. So it's more just like a pragmatic thing. It's like, yeah, you will have the the films on the undistributed list. And so um, you have uh, distributors are like, oh, we should pick this up and release it. Um, and while having an undistributed list has the danger of like ghettoizing them um, and make, making them like a kind of separate thing, the, the difficulty is that if you combine the lists, they just might not make it at all. And so um, that's the, the counterpoint, I guess. Yeah, I see. I see. Yeah, it's it's difficult. I yeah, I can't think of a proper way of dealing with that. But I I then also think that sometimes the very best films of the year also just then never getting this full attention, you know, of uh, of even like a Kelly Reichardt film who yeah, you know, that made it on number two, I think, of their uh, list this year of their official list. But yeah, in any case, there was just something I wanted to have somewhat placed here. So the films I want to mention are Burek Savig's Form of Forgetting that I saw at the Berlinale. And yeah, great pick uh, of the forum section. Then I really liked uh, Lee Jong Hong's A Wild Rumor that I only got to see through L. So <laughs> thanks for that. Elena Navariani's Blackbird, Blackbird, Blackberry that played at Cannes. And uh, yeah, a great sort of new interpretation of mythic text that somewhat reminded me of another filmmaker from North Macedonia who made God, God exists. Her name is Petronia, uh, among other things. And they sort of have set themselves on a similar, I think, of re-examining how traditions work, how females are sort of looked at in society and they do that by you know addressing rituals or traditions and uh yeah texts that are ancient old and give them sort of a new outline uh i really liked angela shanalek's music as well uh lisandro alonso's eureka that i suppose i haven't met a person yet who was completely, you know, in line with the third part of the film, but the first two were all the more impressive. And yeah, I could have watched that for much longer. Um, then there's a sort of, even by the standards of our podcast here, Arcane uh, Choice that is uh, de facto by Selma Doborak. It's a sort of reenactment project and I'm, Recently, I've been really interested in a reenactment film. This is about the crimes of uh, of the Nazis, but in a way that is very anonymous. So they use actual texts they have researched and they let them be interpreted without real emotion by two actors. And they have a sort of conversation uh, with each other where it's not so much a conversation, but it's a monologue followed by another monologue where they just talk about the crimes they committed and how sort of, yeah, it's sort of nonchalant without any feeling it's uh, portrayed. Then there's a stone that goes well together with uh, remembering every night. 
So two Japanese films of young directors that both played at the Berlinale Forum as well and perceive very similar themes. So uh, there's a stone by Tetsunari Ota and Yui, uh, I, yeah, I will butcher these names completely, Yui Kiyohara, uh, Remembering Every Night. Yeah, very similar films. They're just really tracing these people and what kind of, yeah, they're tracing people who trace people, basically. And uh, this is a very fascinating thing to to watch. Then, thanks to Lawrence, I saw Kid Zohar's This Closeness, that, that I wouldn't have thought that a film from South by Southwest makes it here, but <laughs> there we go. Uh, very, very young filmmaker, and it's re really impressive. I, I didn't know uh, that she was also the lead actor uh, in that film, uh, so... Uh, there's a lot to expect from her as well. Todd Haynes, May, December. I have the inkling that we will talk about that today as well. And Aki Kelvis Mickey's Fawn Leaves. Uh, so yeah, those are my films. <laughs> yeah. Do we have a system? Yeah, perhaps. Okay. Would you like to start? I think mine was Yannick <laughs> because I also made a numbered list for Altia Z and I put Yannick in the 10th uh, place. I like... As I was saying before, I really wanted to give some space for the for films that would go overlooked, uh, but that I thought really important for me. And Yannick was uh, one of them. I, I really find Dupuis cinema fascinating, uh, him being a director uh, whose films are mostly focused on humor and comedy. And being in all the festival circuits, in, whether it be Cannes, Venice, and this particular film, since it's about cinema itself and about being a spectator in a um, theater, the, the situation of being taken hostage really uh, intrigued me about and made me question, like I think, like it did, did for everyone else, made me question about my own situation as a spectator while watching a movie, while still watching a movie. And it's really meta in such a clever and funny way. I I, I think it was an amazing film for me. Yeah. I also got to see Yannick. I think it's, it's somewhere on my list as well. I found... I mean, the, the premise is a man goes to the theater. The theater is actually um, the bouffe, Théâtre des bouffes parisiennes. Bouffe really... being like bouffe as in like bouffa or like funny. It It's the word, from this word we get farce. And so it was um, established by Offenbach. This is a little bit of a, an aside, but it was established by Jacques Offenbach. And his work has often a critic once said that, you know, it's a charming piece of nothing. <laughs> no, no, charming piece of nonsense, excuse me. And um, and so this man is a uh, parking attendant. He goes to the theater for his night off. He spends 45 minutes going to the theater and 15 minutes walking to the theater. And in the middle of the production, he says, th th what are you doing? <laughs> he stands up and he says, this is all really bad. I'm not going to tolerate this anymore. And he demands that things change. I don't know how much to give away, but it was, it was, it was very funny. Lots of funny moments. Um, essentially, 
like you say, playing with the hostage situation. He also is armed. And and I think it, I also loved how accessible the movie was to different levels of spectator. It's not mm-hmm. like a, I mean, I'm of, of course telling this, oh, it's such a meta film. But I am sure that lots of people without knowing that this kind of thinking or reflection mm. would also enjoy Yannick. And I think it's really important to have that when you're talking about art movies, like who yeah. are these films made for? And Yannick definitely like ticks all the boxes in that sense. Yeah, I think Dupuis really knows mm-hmm. because I mean, the film was also made in secrecy or something like this while he was doing Dali. <laughs> And it's less than an hour long. And I think that really appeals to long-term cinema goers or or people who are just passing by and they want to see something that's just entertaining. Yeah, that's a nice number 10. Yeah, I did not have a chance to see that film, but I did see Dali and that was one of the crazier experiences I had in Venice because there the audience was all in <laughs> for him. Of course, some didn't like, didn't get his, didn't. <laughs> Like they don't get what he's up to. And then then it's a bit uh, frustrating for them, I felt, at least, you know, based on like ang- anger they expressed <laughs> as well. But most of the people were just, yeah, they were just uh, frenetic, really. I don't think I've actually seen any of Dupuis films, but this this is the most I've ever come to being interested in. So maybe <laughs> I will catch up with it. It does help that it's under an hour. Mm. it's a charming piece of nonsense <laughs> very absurd yeah okay and for you eliana what's your top 10 it's passages by ira Sachs. so this is the berlinana film that made it well um, actually a sundance film but then it also oh, played at berlinana okay yeah. thank you this is the sundance film that appeared at the berlinana and um now it's on movie streaming And uh, this is just a film that when I think about it, it makes me, I don't know, I think it's, you have an art house. Is he an art house filmmaker? He's trying to orchestrate uh, his film and he does what he wants to do. He's very, he's very much, he wants to be in control. And he also is going between his long-term partner and entertaining Adele, exactly. I can't say anything right now. Um, okay, Sasha Poulot. Yes. But perhaps we should mention like, who's the lead actor. The lead here. actor is Franz Rogowski. Uh-huh. And um, his uh, long-term partner is played by Ben Wisha. And Adele Exarchopoulou <laughs> plays the... Um, Well, what I see as like a continuation of her role in Blue is the Warmest Color, (laughs) in some sense, um, plays the woman who somewhat, yes, she's still a teacher, um, who derails him to a degree. But he, Franz Rogowski's character, who's named Thomas, is still always in control and sort of in a very toxic way, floating between these two people. And I'm sure everyone... We've all seen sort of triangles of love. I think what makes this one special to me is just the interior design and the costume and the way that the textures and the skin and the outfits, the outfits. Um, I have heard some people saying like, oh, 
this is this is very European centric. This is a an American man from Tennessee who would like to make a film that shows his devotion and love towards European art house cinema. And I can see that too, but for some reason this film this film did it for me. The compositions were especially to me quite curious and appealing where just just what we see and what we don't see the heads of people that are cut off the backs of people's heads the physicality of the actors and um just how they navigate through space there's a a large blown up poster of Watteau's Pierrot Pierrot and this I can't <laughs> talk in a very smart way about why I like this film but I just it appealed to me and yeah. Did you all get to see Passages as well? I also bought the Franz Rogowski's top for... <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. I'm just like a lowered, lowered the level of <laughs> discussion <laughs> after Watto. But yeah, I get the like a, this mesh top mm-hmm. for Christmas. <laughs> I saw it on Moby Notebook's Christmas gift guide. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't help myself. <laughs> yeah. Now, I was going to ask, how did you ID the the top but it makes sense that movie has it on their list I, I like the film as well maybe not as much as his previous films i think the favorite scene my favorite scene in the film or the one that i still remember anyway is the one where um franz rogowski's character meets the parents of adele exarchopoulos and like the sort of the i don't know the sort of negotiations that happen because he's kind of this ridiculous very like overbearing and like German character and I guess I guess the expectations from these very French parents are are very different from what they want for their daughter it's like who is this person who my daughter wants to marry and I think I like the, the sort of social dynamics that are typically in his films this one oddly felt like more um underpopulated than his other films like that's maybe the standout but in general it's more about the three characters whereas usually the social world is a bit stronger I feel like um but yeah no I still enjoyed it. Though there's not as much sex as you would you would expect or hope for from from the the I don't know it was rated like NC seventeen I think in the US which is why I mentioned mm-hmm. that because it's like a really odd oddly like uh, not high rating like yeah anyway Sorry. then it's the US no <laughs> how about you Lawrence what is your number ten uh, my number ten is Totem by Lila Aviles so this was premiered in Berlin competition. So it's one of the first, one of the only comp films I saw at Berlin. But I think I found it really strong, especially after her previous film, even though it's very different in style. Like the first one has much more lockdown static compositions here. The camera is very mobile and it's sort of within this um, family setting. Um, but I think what I found most uh, striking was how it's sort of tethered to the subjectivity of the child who is the main character and sort of conveyed her perspective and her sort of sense of this world where something is about to change because her father is having this last birthday party and he's about to die essentially. But it's like the sense of a world about to change, but she doesn't quite understand what is going on. And I think that sort of ambivalence is, or like, and, and like she knows something is changing, but she doesn't quite understand it um, is, was quite moving. And uh, the movie gets the bad across like, pretty strongly i think uh we actually saw that together i also found it strong and i i still didn't make it to catch up with the other film that i think if i'm not mistaken isn't that about 
a cleaner, like a hotel cleaner or something? Yeah, the, cha the chambermaid. Um, yeah. It's about like a, well, a chambermaid who works in like this uh, hotel in Mexico City. Yeah. Yeah, and I liked in this film here as well, like you talked about like assuming the perspective of the child and then even I think the camera would go up like on a, on a, on a, Uh, like cabinet or something or on a and like it would be very close and it would also pay close attention to these rituals there at the party and yeah i, I think it was a very slow but steady uh exploration of the sort of setting there and i i couldn't even tell because and i think that's always a good sign that i couldn't even quite make out what kind of culture that is because If that is the case, if I cannot make that out, that perhaps means that they did it right, you know, that they don't have to like give me any explanation of what's going on. It's just I'm thrown in there and I appreciated that very much. Any of you have the chance to see that as well? I saw Totem and there was another competition movie which was centered on a, a kid. It was, I think, 200. Ah, yeah. Uh, 200 bees. bees or, species, yeah. Of species, species of bees. Species of yeah. bees. And I don't know why, but like a lot of people around me preferred the 200 sp uh, species of bees, whereas I was really personally touched by Totem. It's really stood out in competition in Berlin. And I, I, I also really enjoyed it too. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing it if I have the chance at some point. And I'm taking your uh, responsibility to ask you uh, what was the movie in your 10th place, Patrick? Mine was uh, actually a 2022 film uh, that is Antoine Bouche's uh, Concrete Valley, a Parisian-born filmmaker uh, who I think is based in Vancouver now. And I think he also works as a professor there. I think, Lawrence, you had a great, great piece in Cinemascope on that film uh, with an interview with the filmmaker. and Yeah, I interviewed him for Cinemascope uh, last year when it played in Toronto at Wavelengths and then it played in Vancouver. But yeah, he's based in Vancouver now. Um, although the film is set in Toronto. Um, yeah, Right. And there in the sort of immigrant milieu, right? He's uh, like the protagonist. His family comes from Syria, I think. And this film seems to be very much about language. And I always like films that are about language. It's, they sort of speak imperfect English. It sort of starts off with an in, in English class. And I think it's very, it's very slow and it's very patient with the people there. And, you know, I, at the moment, I'm also working in that kind of environment uh, as a language teacher and a lot of uh, a lot of little aspects hit home uh for me and yeah i like when the language is imperfect i love that for instance very much in um the the before films when julie delpy's english is always or like often slightly off and it's even part of the part of the script and then it becomes a point of mentioning that she cannot swear properly in, in, in English or something like that. And here it's also, it sort of adds to the, there is something under underpinning, underlying uh, this entire 
study of these characters of this family but in particular of this guy i think he's a physician uh, or he he used to be and now he cannot really work in that occupation or like he cannot take on that occupation but he tries nonetheless so there's this scene that i won't forget when he's just at his neighbor who asks him or who tells him about some pain uh she has and then he saw sort of he assumes responsibility for that and he tries to to cure that in some in some sense and it's it's so awkward this scene but what i love about this is that this protagonist is totally unaware of the awkwardness the way he's sitting there on the on the couch and i think the film captures that uh greatly and so yeah it's a very mm, i think it's a very overlooked film but i hope uh there's more to be heard from this filmmaker so that is Antoine Bourges uh, uh Concrete Valley yeah and Erku what is the number nine maybe I'm being too political like they did in Berlinale this year like of this picks in, in in the awards the film I picked for this was Orlando which was made by an author I really admire Paul Preciado he writes in about this gender issues, trans transgenders, gender issue, uh, psychoanalysis, French philosophy, like a really prolific writer. And um, this film is actually about Virginia Woolf's Orlando, about adapting Orlando and thinking and commenting on it from the point of view of, uh, of a trans narrative. And like there's so many layers in this movie about adaptation, not just about literature to film, but about an author using another artist's texts. Like how do you, as an artist, we approach to another artist's herb? And I think how um, the way the as we, the artists employ kind of a violence to in order to create something is really prominent in that film and I, I really love that idea and I also loved how Preciado made an anal analogy between the transition of himself and the other people involved in the movie all with the transitioning of an idea to the uh, work itself as like a becoming something, like a transition as becoming becoming a film, becoming a book, becoming an artist, becoming a person. And it's these all layers up one after another. And like, it's, it's really worked for me. Like everything I love about uh, art world, cinema was there. So even though it was a bit of a messy for a first time filmmaker, I really cherished it when I watched it. And Herbs, may I ask you, because I also saw you had still some criticism on that film too, no? About like binary depiction of East and West, I think. I, I think I read that on your... Yeah, I think um, like it, it's been a while. Like I think it was in February when I watched it. So I have to maybe come back and think about it, about these, but I think um, the moment when Orlando's transition starts, it's when like the transition process starts for Preciado is when uh, she travels, when he travels to the East. 
So my maybe like the criticism I remember from that to have this East as a kind of sort of a transition of like an eye-opening aspect in the story. Like I, my understanding of East wasn't like that, but if, of course, like a, everyone has a different interpretation of that, but yeah. Yeah, it I felt a bit exoticized, exoticized for me. I was going to say, that's presumably just taken from the, the novel, right? That's the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I think what I liked most about the film was how the, the sort of interviews with the um, the trans actors were integrated with um, almost verbatim text of the of the novel. And so at times you couldn't tell whether they were talking about themselves or the characters they were playing and that sort of uh illegibility was like really interesting um where their sort of autobiographies like mingle together um yeah as you say it, it's like maybe a little bit it was maybe a little all over the place for my taste uh but i there was definitely something there um that i found interesting should we move to eliana's number nine my number nine is blackbird blackbird black berry by Eleni Naverian. This actually works very well off of Orlando. Uh, I haven't seen that film that you just talked about, but there's something about it that I that appealed to me in that it was a representation of a, a woman living in a rural area, a small village. She's 48, she's older. It's just the type of... Mm, these types of women, these are role model in film, if we think of it in this sense, has been absent frequently. And uh, I think that seeing someone who is older, in some sense, discover her sexuality, but do so in what the filmmaker has also referred to as an instinctive feminist. And I like this idea of instinctive feminism because it's it also is this to say, okay, so are we also taught feminism now, perhaps? And is instinctive feminism is could be something, you know, just just understanding what the values of being alive <laughs> should be like. Um, and I think the film is very endearing. Stars a woman who has just such an incredible face and um, has a comedic aspect to it that I think could be easily missed. Um, it also emerges in some sense from, Patrick mentioned it earlier, right? A mythological um, right. Georgian folktale. And the film is based off of a book uh, that of the same title. And it was something that escapes just what our idea of womanhood yeah. is. I think also off the back of a lot of films, um, in previous years that have discussed regret over motherhood. Mm. And this is a film that is exploring the milieu of someone who has chosen not to be with someone, which I think is still, there's a lot of territory to be explored there. And just wanted to jump in there because like, as you were saying, the subject of feminism, like when we look back this year, uh, this feminist films that were mentioned are always with like a poor things or Barbie where this beautiful really idealistic depiction women are always really present yeah. but here we have a really like a normal ordinary body 
like a really assuming herself as an individual and discovering herself in a rather hostile social environment mm -hmm. and which this kind of um, bullying comes from women themselves, like kind of a representing the self-loathing mm -hmm. way the women, older women are kind of thought to think like that. Like when you get older, you have to kind of project your hostility mm. to yourself, to others, so that you can cope with these problems. And I'm curious also about this folktale, because um, what I thought about this mythical aspect was when, when at the beginning of the film, she goes to pick uh, blackberries and she kind of, this kind of depiction of eating the uh, forbidden fruit, she kind of falls mm -hmm. down, but also, a near death experience, yeah, yeah. And then it makes her come back to life again. So my interpretation of the mythical aspect was that like, is there another layer of that that I don't know about maybe if you and perhaps I, I wrote on that film. So I do somewhat remember the myth there, but or like the mythological element. But the thing that struck me especially is that if you remember, she had a she had a brother who died, and this brother had a very stronghold on her. Like he he was the force in in her life, and she was sort of under his under his control to some extent. But um, in the story now, like in this film he appears now only as as a as a ghost like she she imagines him at some point and he becomes only a story whereas in the mythological text he's an actual character and he portrays certain qualities you know and he he has a certain uh, aura there where here it's all a second degree thing so i found that interesting in itself yeah who's next it's Lawrence. Uh, so my number nine is um, the Victor Arife film, Close Your Eyes, which I know Oiku is uh, not a fan of, but <laughs> nevertheless. If a film makes it on a higher point in someone else's list, then we will skip it for now. And uh, for okay. me, it will come later. So let's talk okay, about that. So later. we'll, yeah. Okay. okay, so your number nine, Patrick? <laughs> uh, that is uh, Claire Simon's uh, Notre Corps. But so then you have, have to skip, skip it. Too. <laughs> so it's on so, Urku again, right? Number okay, eight. I, I'm, I'm like really special uh, expert of choosing films that nobody chooses. Um, this one also uh, passed quite uh, unnoticed by lots of people. I, I've never seen this film in any other people's top down list this year. It's Riddle of Fire that I saw in Kenzan this year. And actually like... Lawrence, probably you'd remember, like I bought this uh, Kaie issue in uh, Cannes. Like it was, I think, May issue for, um, and there was this image that I thought it was from a French film at, in, at the beginning, but it was actually from Riddle of Fire and in Kaie's co co cover. And it really struck me even before watching the movie. And then I watched it and I was so impressed by the authenticity and the clever creativity behind the behind this it's just a, like a i mean it's 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 like a fairy tale like um there is three kids who wants to play with their playstation but their mom like there are two siblings and 
the other one is their friend and their mom tell them like no you can't play it anymore like it's you have to stop it's too much and she tells them like I'm too tired maybe if you can bake me a pie I'd allow you to play it so it just starts with that and there's this really um, kind of aesthetic of maybe a medieval I'd say aesthetic really mixed with American uh, countryside American culture and I really enjoyed this kind of mixture between uh, fairy tale uh contemporary American family dynamics but also these really random people where the children try to bake, bake a pie and go on adventure and meet different people and there's a there's a princess there's there's so many different and funny and quirky things in the movie I I it was such a beautiful experience for me and I mean maybe it's not the perfect film but I, it just it's there and I, I I don't think I'll forget that movie and I think what that's what it counts right yes <laughs> nobody watched it here so we can move on no I, I actually watched I, I watched it because of the still that was on the Cahier cover uh, I enjoyed I think I would say I enjoyed the first half of the movie where they're just like playing around I love when they go to the grocery store and they get the ingredients because they're they're basically looking for the ingredients for this blueberry pie but they're very specific ingredients and at some point it requires them to find like a speckled egg or something mm-hmm. and it leads them into a forest it leads them into an encounter with the like this thing called the enchanted blade gang or whatever and anyway it it, it goes in a direction that i found harder to 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 go with but for maybe half of it i really enjoyed it what about you eliana what is your number number eight? Oh gosh okay Number eight. So we've already broken the system because it seems like I put Yannick down for number eight, which means uh, you failed us. Uh, no, we didn't. I didn't. We didn't pick it up. But that means Lawrence, you'll. Uh, okay. An- My number eight is the Hong Sang Soo movie that was at Fortnite um, in our day. Uh, so this is Hong's second movie of the year, and I think maybe the lesser liked one. I think some people quite liked In Water, but In Our Day seems to have been the the lesser appreciated one. But I think part do of you what th- I- do you think that's because it is so uh because it is so personal that people think that's like the more I don't know more mature Hong or something maybe I mean it def- it's definitely you mean in water right yeah like it's more personal about his vision right yeah I think it has a more upfront visual conceit in that well it's like the images are out of focus and so it's more polarizing in the sense that more people loved it and um some people really didn't like it, but it was doing something quite different. Whereas I think in our day, um, got a bit more of like, oh, this is just Hong doing his Hong thing again. And I can understand that, but I think what I appreciated is that basically the film alternates between these two different stories. Um, And I think the question here is, well, how are these stories related? And I think that's sort of where, I don't know, my like commitment to having seen all of Hong's movies like comes to the fore is that, like you think about something like Ha Ha Ha, where you have two people talking about their vacation and you have a kind of flashback structure there where you're alternating between them and they don't realize that they've actually been in the same place interacting with the same people. Whereas here, the two stories are completely separate. How are these related? Is it happening in the same day? Are they even in the same world? Like how are, and there are these like weird synchronicities in the plot that um, lead you to ask questions about how these two stories are connected. But they never quite link up. 
And so there's always this sort of, I don't know, kind of parallel um, aspect to them that never uh, collapses. Like there's a, an interest in each story that is sort of maintained throughout that there's no like cause and effect between the two stories never really comes into play. And so um, it keeps the, the kind of mystery of the film alive, at least for me. Yeah, to me, that was also one of the, uh, perhaps the, if it was just about, you know, pleasure of being together at a film festival, that was perhaps my highlight this year at Cannes because I was basically sitting with six or seven people in a row seeing that film and they were all, I don't know, chanting and enjoying it very much. I don't, I don't have that source of, you know, knowledge on his filmography. I've only seen, I don't know, six or seven of his films, but not all the 20 or 30 or what have you. Uh, but just on a very pure uh, experience level, I, I like that quite a lot. And I mean, I've seen a lot of people just narrowing it down to, I don't know, enjoy yourself, you know, like uh, 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 not despite, but for your idiocracies and all your little mm, things you cannot, what to say, uh, what to call it, uh, you know, like the alcohol, the the smoking, you know, he he's not letting go of it. And in the end, the film makes it a point uh, that perhaps it's for the better to him. And that's a very basic reading of mine, but I, I've found that pleasant enough. I've only drank two Hong Sang-soo films. And so I think my palate has yet to develop. I do remember the cat, the cat, <laughs> Uri. <laughs> I do love I, the cat. But uh, I don't remember much of the film, which is, <laughs> but you have given reason to revisit at some point. But I'm not sure where to start with the Hong Sang-soo retrospective, because Patrick, seeing only six or seven films sounds like a lot. But that is also, I suppose, he's made over 40. Is that, um, or maybe, not quite? Maybe closer to 30, I think. I'm not, I don't think it's quite at 40 yet. Okay. <laughs> so Patrick? Is that me? Is Patrick, that me? Yes. Okay. Uh, for me, it's the number eight, Victor Riese. So now, Lawrence, you may. Because I must say, that was just somewhat similar to the Hong. There was, of course, you can, you know, Victor Riese is such a big name for cinema, in cinema. Uh, his first film since 1992. And then there was this scandal as well at Cannes that we covered at some point. It was all very annoying. <laughs> but the film itself was just so heartfelt. It was so, without overdoing it, it was, was as horrible as that sounds. It was about the power of cinema, you know, and how you can sort of, if if you should doubt that sort of uh, idea or not the film at the end doesn't seem to do so but yeah there is the sort of framing device that I like as well uh, the film starts off with this uh, excerpt of the film that is found and then a journey starts and as so often in cinema it's about the either the uh, lost object or the lost person that needs to be found and we follow this person who lives a very uh, withdrawn life in um, yeah, in a trailer park, basically. I they, was it in Spain? Uh, does he live in Spain? Yeah, it's somewhere on the coast, I think. Yeah. yeah. And 
there's so many things that I think cannot quite get together again because because I couldn't find my notes on this film and then I'm a bit lost. But there were a lot of little details. I like that there's a very emotional um, scene at a bonfire where they sing a song, my my pony, my rifle, and me, or something like that. And there is there is this sub thread of the film where where a book is found that uh, was once exchanged between two lovers and there these very meticulous small scenes that uh, sort of in their entirety they form yeah they form a bigger picture and yeah and I don't know what else to say because I I, I must say I don't remember so much of the film but the things i do remember them them i remember strongly so yeah yeah actually i wrote on this film for cinemascope and so i was forced to you know like put together some sort of argument and i think i what i find most interesting about it is i don't know i don't know the, the sort of power of cinema thing it's i don't really ap approach the film in that way i think what i find most moving about it is that it is about how does one make a film after the the medium has built up a kind of history? Basically, how do you make a film where everything, like everything you put in, every kind of gesture you will put in, will recall something from the history of cinema? It's like it's very natural for us to when we see something, it's like oh that was like that film or that was like that film, and it's like you know at the end of the film there's this miracle that happens, and it's like oh you think of or dead or you think of dryer or whatever. Um, and so, you know, it's like, it's about kind of the burden of making a film once cinema history is already in place. And how do you, how do you go on, keep on making things without falling into a kind of cliche? Um, and I find like the, the scene, the My Rifle, My Pony and Me scene, that's obviously the famous scene from Rio Bravo. And I mean, for me, that's kind of catnip, but really the, what is moving about the film, I think is sort of finding new ways to make a film and what it, what does novelty really mean in this sort of day and age and i think grappling with that question in the way that it does i found very moving but but maybe oiku can now uh share her misgivings about the film no because like after hearing what you said i just i i think i would it would really feel like i'm being cynical about it because yeah and i mean it's really heartfelt that you just mentioned that it's really like I reach after so many years making a film and also the inevitability of this references everywhere. And I think I kind of felt bad about it right now of expecting something really different or complete, I don't know, masterpiece. I don't know what masterpiece means, but like, as if we're so hungry to this new things from big names such as Ericho or Godard or I don't know Costa that every time they make a movie we have this inherent expectation that it would it should be good right and that's why I kind of feel guilty about my expectations for this movie as well but what I didn't like was actually this nostalgia that you mentioned about cinema which obviously I felt was really something I, I, I have seen many times, especially the scene in the movie theater in the end. 
but at the same time I understand and I respect but also I watched this movie in Cannes maybe I wasn't in the mood I maybe I should give it another chance but what I felt was that it was a bit archaic in its form yeah I mean that's why maybe it didn't work for me and I couldn't get to the point of realizing that maybe it's inevitable while I was watching it like I I didn't approach and maybe I didn't show this kind of understanding towards the movie I wasn't really open so that's why maybe I should give it another chance and have another approach to it no it's uh, I think I was rather positive on the film when I first saw it and it's curious not as positive as you Patrick but I was curious to hear this uh, extra layer Lawrence that you're adding because uh, you know so it just gives me the image that I'm left with is of this uh, sculpture this Janus 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 looking in both directions and then sort of seeing this perhaps as a as a split maybe the few with your new input of the future of maybe not cinema but or then the past but then also just how to be split in such a sense where everything is together um, can also work with nostalgic elements too. But perhaps, yeah, um, it's also interesting how he sort of, on a formal level, tries to avoid it with these very digital, you know, images that contrast so strongly with how the movie starts. Uh, yeah, there was, of course, a, a, a conscious choice as well, right? To not give us these nostalgic nostalgic images just on the just pure cinematic uh level yeah i think for me the 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 sort of where we open with these like very clearly film images of this movie and we don't really know yet that it's um a film within a film like like i expected this to just be the movie and so when the transition comes and you're like oh actually this was this is a film that he made that this filmmaker is supposed to have made years ago um, that was a bit of a shock, um, and I think that goes to sh goes to show partly like that expectation. It's like we, he's an old filmmaker. We expected him to make this kind of a film, right? And so that sort of refusal of that expectation, I think, sort of helped me understand that this wouldn't that even though it w is engaging with the history, it's maybe not um, just sentimentality there. Um, yeah. Should we move on to number seven? So. Then you have put this as your Los number delicuentes? Los delicuentes. yes it's my number three okay so we have to skip and then it's me again and then it's you again okay um i think we we're now finally at notre corps so uh i think it was uh, patrick's uh, number ten, nine right yes that was my number nine. um i oh. all this is also i think it was the first movie i watched uh, oh but i think it's my number five okay okay so <laughs> let's move on let's move on let's move on okay who is it now uh i guess i guess that's me so my number seven is it's a very long title the feeling that the time for doing something has passed so this is the joanna arno movie that was at director's fortnight or kanzan this year and I think the plot summary, such as it is, is very simple. It's like there's this 30-something Jewish woman played by Arno, the filmmaker, director, and she just is into sort of BDSM um, relationships. And so she has these relationships with various like masters, in quotes. And I think what I find interesting is that your sense of time passing, as the title kind of suggests, is very like, it's very hard to tell 
when the film is moving forward and when it is not, because your sense of her behavior is is in these really weird situations. And so you don't actually know how, like what she's like, like quote unquote normally, like what is her usual behavioral kind of sense. And so you have one of the, my favorite scenes of the film is this, you know, montage with music, which you usually kind of in, in like a very kind of cliche film, you would have that be, oh, this is like, oh, um, you're seeing like these big changes that are happening in a person's life over like a very compressed period of time. Whereas here, your sense of like forward momentum is very restricted, partly because you don't really know how your she behaves like from day to day or like what is her behavior and what is her just sort of acting in these different relationships as like a like a submissive uh, sex partner. Um, and so that's what I found quite interesting about the movie. Um, yeah. Did anyone like? I think other people had seen it. Yeah, as well. yeah. I, I, I also, I was also. <laughs> we talked thinking... on this podcast on this film. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. But it was the only film that you hadn't. Seen. Oh, that, it's true. At that, mo at mo at that moment, I, I haven't but seen it. Seen. Yeah. So I was thinking about this aspect of stagnant, uh, stagnant aspect in her life as well, because like even we sense it in the rhythm, but also I think this kind of low key nothing is changing aspect is also present in her personal and professional life, which is kind of a uh, reflected in the relationships as well. Right. And, but it's funny because right. her professional life actually does move forward. Like she, you don't expect it, but she actually like moves up in the, in her career. But it but happens in a, it, it doesn't really impact you. Like, as you said, like we don't see any huge difference in her lifestyle or anything. It's just like, oh, yeah, a, no. No, no, exactly. That, that's what I mean. It's like mm -hmm. there is this big shift, but it almost comes at you by surprise because you don't really understand like what she's like normally. And so it doesn't seem to change your sense of her transformation. Like whatever transformation is there seems to be detached from this like, I don't know, rise in her career. Um, yeah. And also, if I'm not mistaken, there's this uh, episodic narration with kind of creates a disruption between the continuity of events that kind of also disrupts the temporal flow of what what and when it's happening the chapters are yeah the, the, the lovers love exactly mm -hmm. yeah it's interesting <laughs> okay. she um in an interview with movie she said that she sort of took inspiration a bit from timing liang in terms of like the sort of very st like the static compositions the interest in bodies and it's not a comparison that I would have thought about while watching the movie, but I can sort of see like a little, like a little bit of that in the sense of like, obviously their styles and I think their sense of humor is quite different, but in terms of how the compositions are very static and don't really guide our attention and just like allows like the bodies to be in the foreground. It's like, how do they act? How do they respond in these different situations is, is, is sort of where the interest comes from. Yeah. Maybe something to add to your to, to the point of being the like the submissive character with her masters, like this level of not knowing who she really is. Is also there's another level that comes from the fact that the filmmaker herself is playing the main role because I think inevitably we also think about like her as the character. Like, is there any I don't know aspect of her own being in the character like as a filmmaker she's also present there right i mean it yeah. can be can be read as a layer there 
inner character, mm-hmm. I think. Into the autofictional. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I would definitely not... recommend her previous film, um, I Hate Myself, Smiley Face. There's a smiley face in the title. Um, and it's it's uh, it has even more of this autobiographical mm-hmm. um, sort of meta aspect to it. And like the, the structure is like super, super interesting. Um, I think it's only, it's under an hour, I think. But mm-hmm. I would definitely recommend it if you um, like this film. And didn't that play at the Berlinale? Do I remember correctly? I think she won a prize there, but but I don't I don't know if it was that film or a previous uh-huh. short film. I don't. I'm not sure. I mean, I think this is. I think that was her first like closer to feature length. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's quite so possible perhaps, that that yeah, was okay. the film. So what okay. about your number uh, seven, Patrick? Um, my number seven is Bus Devos is here. Okay, so we can skip that. That's also. okay. Yes. Okay, we have a, uh, I think, common a film, Patrick. It's uh, Monello's La Bette. That's correct. Yes. I think I remember talking about this film with you. Am I, if I'm not mistaken, in Venice? Yeah. No? Yeah, we did. Like talking about, oh, it's it's really interesting. I'm not sure what I feel, what I feel about this, but it's it's intrig- it, it really intrigued me. And so I kept thinking about it. I kept thinking about it. And I'm like, I really want to watch it again at the, to, to that point. It's it's such a uh, inspirational and weird storyline, even though it's maybe for some, some people think that it's cliche of this, like a partner's meeting in different Uh, periods of time in their lives and this character remembering their past relationships uh, to forget in the in the near future I'm I'm just mixing <laughs> everything up but it's actually inspired uh, by this uh, the story by Henry James The Beast in the Jungle which is also adapted to another film by Patrice Shika uh, La Bête dans la Shiha, Jungle yeah. Shiha yeah. And um, which played at what, the Berlinale, yes. Yeah, what I liked about the bet is the sense of instability and this kind of instability and fear that kind of represents our own uh, contemporary uh, period of time. Just a feeling of anxiety or not knowing that what will happen in the future, and this kind of anticipation of events that I constantly feel in my daily life. And it, I thought while watching the movie, I thought it really captured that feeling of this weird anxiety that I, I'm incapable of describing, but I feel constantly. And I also really love the humor of the film, especially in this uh, in the second uh, level. I think like in the in the contemporary current time uh, timeline, where this obsessed right wing guy tries to harass our uh, the Leia Cedar's character. I really love their interactions in that time period. But I also, I was also curious about how w- would it be if um, the male character was, would be played by, yeah. uh, what was the guy's name? Oh my God. I'm so the person yes, who's- was- Yeah, I, I constantly thought about that while watching it. So how was your impressions? Yeah, in a way I, for the first- hour or 40 minutes i wasn't sure was what this was going to be the film i didn't have any information going in so i was surprised you know finding just the sort of period piece uh 
but then it developed. I, of course, it starts with this very impressive opening scene that is Lea Seydoux in the green screen. And she's sort of to, she's sort of to understand where she's situated in the room. Uh, she's, I, I don't know if it was for a commercial or a bad film, like a bad horror film or something, but there is this, yeah, she's supposed to react to a monster. And uh, this was such a great film to start it. And then it sort of slowed down to an extent that I at first didn't quite understand. But the more the film went on, the more I understood what he's up to, or like I felt I get a sense of what he's up to. There are these three um, time levels of 1910, that is at the time when Paris was flood, uh, completely inundated, and the streets or, or the, the alleys are deserted there. Then we have 2014 and uh, 2044. Mm. Yeah, what you said, of course, it's it could so easily become this cliche, right? That you have this love that persists throughout time. But I think Bonello explores this in such an interesting way because the constellation permanently, you know, it, it ongoingly, it changes between the two. And uh, the, the desire that is of such a different nature as, as, as we see them in different time periods uh, between these two. Um, and also it felt like such a continuation of coma really, because these poetics that you sort of mentioned of disruption, I would even say of glitch, there's a lot of glitching going on in that film. And I saw it in other films as well. Of course, when we talk about uh, the human search later, there's also this element of glitch. And I think this instability that's had has become, or this had developed into our time that everything seems so unsteady these days. And I think his take on this is, I don't know many other filmmakers then that can capture horror so well as as he does these days. Even though he that doesn't do explicit horror films, and I have not seen House of Tolerance yet, but I wonder how this would also sort of contribute to my understanding of this film. And there are still these ongoing preoccupations of his with the puppets, for instance. These puppets appear in all the films I've seen in Nocturama where they sort of evoke this moment of shock. Yeah. They, they instill this moment of shock that one just resembles a mannequin in a shopping mall. And uh, then in coma, you, you had the Barbies. And I, I think it was for that movie that he actually very spontaneously had uh, Uriel on board because he, he spoke the Ken or something. He voiced Ken or someone there. And yeah, there's. I think there's nothing I can compare that to, and it. Yeah, it, I I had a very strong response to it, and I think I will think about that film again. And I hope it yeah. doesn't end up like Coma, which I think is still without distribution. You know, you can hardly see that film anywhere. So yeah. And also, like I kind of felt the same way as you did with this first part. I think, and what's made me come on board was the second part which I kind of thought was similar to Inland Empire or maybe Mulholland Drive in some way maybe a kind of a lynching uh delirium I don't know 
if anybody else thought about it like that, but uh, also about this instability in narrative. I think we also feel that in characters' depictions because even though Leia's character kind of stays the same, the guy is not really the same person in every in different timelines. And I also love that aspect of like who who's this person like every in every different timeline it he behaves in different ways and i i also felt really kind of irritated and like what will become of this person at the end kind of uh anxiety and like because normally characters are things that like a channel and carry the story right so you kind of in instinctively trust them or like because they carry the story but here it he he was so unbalanced and un- incoherent between timelines that it felt like where where are we going with this guy who is this person and that was also really interesting that i haven't seen in many films except for maybe psychological thrillers like which where it's really obvious yeah but i'm really interested now in hearing lawrence dragging our euphoria down on that film uh because you were not such a big fan of this film, right? No, but I should preface by saying that I was like very, very, very excited for um, The Beast. Like if there was one film this year that I wanted to see most, it was um, Bonello's The Beast. And I don't know, I don't want to judge uh, such a tricky film so quickly, but for me, it just, it didn't really seem to do anything that I hadn't seen him do before already. In fact, I thought, you compared it to Coma, and in some ways, I thought Coma already got at all this kind of anxiety and this sort of like better. I think, but you know, yeah, that's so interesting. I, that like this is the project he just pursued because he couldn't do his big film that was, you know, uh, La Bête. And it says sometimes interesting, isn't it, that these sort of projects you squeeze in as sometimes liked more by people uh that reminds me of uh sean baker's uh w- what was his last film again what's the name red rocket yeah red rocket red because rocket. yeah there was not the film he wanted to make at the time right he wanted to make a much bigger film of much larger scale but red rocket ended up one of the films that you know like perhaps for me one of his strongest films so far but yeah, yeah anyway. I think it's his best. Right? Um, but yeah, no, it, it makes me think a little bit of the sort of the Wong Kar Wai with Chunking Express, which he made very quickly while he was editing Access of Time. Um, in any case, like, I think the sort of experience of, I like the layering of the different time periods, and it's similar into the layering of time that you find in Coma, I think, with the different sort of layers. It's like, there's the Barbie, there's the the room, there's the the Patricia Coma's, like, YouTube channel, there's like these dreams and they all sort of intermingle. And I kind of like that. The letter it. as but well. Yeah, the letter, the sort of the framing device, yeah. right? Um, I think if you go back and visit House of Tolerance, um, I think there's also that sense of like the way it plays with time is interesting. I won't give it away, but the way sort of you're in this very enclosed environment, but sort of the way the movie emerges from that environment is like really striking. Anyway, should we uh, move yes. on to Eliana's number oh. six? I think ah, it's okay. mid-December, thus it's your turn, Lawrence. Okay, yeah, we will move on. Um, 
So my number six is Forms of Forgetting, the Burak Chavit nice. movie, um, which was in Patrick's honorable mentions. I think it's like a really striking movie in very many ways, made with very minimal means, but the kind of essayistic sort of uh, aspect to it is like really interesting. I don't know how to sort of put it. Like I, I did write on this film as well. And so it like, it feels weird to just sort of repeat the things that I wrote about. But it's kind of about how, you know, every time you kind of try to grasp on to this sort of present moment, you get, you you seem to be thrown back in this like past moment. And I find that you seem to be like, go back into memory. Um, and I find that like sort of interaction goes throughout the movie. I think the most striking element is when you're seeing these two people talking about when they first met and their relationship and how they almost got together. And then eventually you have the layering on top of that of them at some point later in the future talking about that moment where they're talking about to each other and sort of that kind of like you have to keep track of all of these layers of time throughout the movie in these very different situations so there is this sort of um these two actors talking but there's also i don't know just a shot of the ice and something pulling out like someone pulling out uh, a net out of this ice fishing hole and then at some point there's like i don't know an image of an elephant like trunk at some point i think there's like images of like a window being broken down and just the way these sort of images sort of resonate with um the image and text i find i found quite striking yeah yeah perhaps because Roku, you are acquainted with the filmmaker no yeah could you perhaps tell a bit more about that i mean since borak is my friend and i also like it that the Turk, uh, French subtitles for its um, projection in Paris. I like. I mean, I don't know how many times what I watched this movie, but um, I, I think I also enjoyed the most this layering of dialogues. And when you think about the actors in real life and how their relationship also kind of projects it itself into the movie, it becomes something else. And I also love its relation with the spaces and because there's this scene when we go to the shipyard when the movies in like we have the shots from the shipyard and it's not about the memory it's not only about memory of people but also about places and um, non-humans that that it's around us like i i remember this uh, line about the metals transfiguring and having these memories um how was that there's a line about metals and how they try to get back to their original forms every time and like that makes you think about the memory that we see around us that exists around us and i also while watching it i also thought about deborah stratman's last things which is also about the memory of the rocks Mm -hmm. and the the non-human beings that that's around us and that also resonated with with that film and burak also made a special projection in it this modern art museum in istanbul uh where the movie won't be projected anywhere uh for 40 years from now on and i think it's so inspiring to think about after 14 years, what will remain from this movie? Like thinking about it, because 
I mean, it's we're bound to forget it. But the the fact that he assumes the forgetfulness in the movie also uh, invites us to think about it more, right? It's kind of a paradoxical thing because it's like a film that tells you that you're going to forget it, you're going to forget it. And like paradoxically, it makes you think about it more. Yeah. Such a cheap trick, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. No, no. <laughs> oh, but um, just a very mundane question here. So the fact that this film recently popped up in my letterbox as having been seen by someone does it mean that person <laughs> went to turkey or does that mean that person had a had a screener that is um yeah. i think i think he won't show it in turkey like i don't know if if there's will be any other projections in around the bird i don't think he will show it in turkey so ah okay <laughs> maybe I it's a turkey only special in turkey. Ah, okay yeah okay yeah but i really like that too just i, I think this is a film that is very much tied with the memory. I met you right outside of the film screening before I first saw it because it came to Paris. And just the idea of promises that are tied to places and in this projection of perhaps never happening and promises that are broken and also the imagery. And that's still, for me, I remember the, now that you've summoned the imagery again, <laughs> Lawrence, of these things and just the relics and some runes and looking out for when things were single or when things were doubled as if this this world is all somehow united in another sense and while we are we are all forgetting together but and then other little details come through like their disputes about what color the dress is or who was wearing what or the intentions as well um, it's a very lovely film, and I'm glad it was highlighted. Okay, we're going to take a little break right now, but thank you for joining us for part one of our top 10 films of 2023. In part two, we'll discuss our top five films. Stay tuned. <laughs> 